Leads, leads, leads. What is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, a show about a place called Leeds, a time called now, and an activity called work. Working Hours wants to record 1,000 lawyers over the course of this, the most important decade in the history of the human species, and ask them about what they do all day and hear how they feel about it. My mission is to try to map out what my city, Leeds, a city that has declared a climate emergency, is doing during humanity's biggest emergency. On working hours, we hear how loiners have, are and will be coping with our multiple crises. The global pandemic, Brexit and of course the ongoing and accelerating collapsing of capitalism, the state and the climate through this decade. To do this I need people, people like you dear listener. Most of all I need people who are in Leeds or who are from Leeds to come on this show and be my guests. So please join me and help me with this mission whenever and however you can. Critically I will need people like you dear listener as financial backers. Please consider supporting or donating to this project. You can do so with a £1 monthly donation via either Patreon or Ko-fi, or you could donate any one-off amount to Working Hours via either Ko-fi or through the LibrePay button on the About page of Western Studios' website. Thank you. My name is Simon, and this is all my fault. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be happy when I grew up. I know that's a really generic and pat answer. Uh, I think when I was little, I had this awareness. I just wanted to be a reader, but also that's not a job. <laughs> so um, I, I think when I was younger, I spent a lot of time working in theatre and wanting to do kind of sound design and stuff like that. Um, and my inability to kind of do physics or science at a, at a decent level was a huge barrier there. Uh, and also all the experience that I had working in theatre at Hong Kong didn't transfer when I came to the UK. It wasn't counted as experience. So it was like having to start over without any work experience at all. You're listening to Series 3, Episode 36, and to my guest, Sun Yi Dean. This is another Zoom interview recorded on the 3rd of November 2022. Hello, loves. So in another win for me, I've just noticed that I've managed to put out an episode every month this year, so far, obviously, which I didn't know I had done. Um, There were some breaks in there, but there's been one in each month. That's a first. I don't think I've recorded every month so far this year, but I will check on that. This is another episode that came about from the same Instagram post as the one that dragged poor Caroline Hudson onto the show. Uh, There may be another victim of that post to come yet too, but we'll have to wait and see on that. Sun Yi Dean is a biracial fantasy author who was born in Texas, grew up in Hong Kong and now resides in the UK. She writes speculative fiction with a weird slant and has both too many books and too many children. Her latest book is a bestseller and you should buy it early and buy it often, as they say on Trash Future. The book is called The Book Eaters and it sounds really good. Go to sunyidean.com forward slash books forward slash the hyphen book hyphen eaters to find out more and buy the book. Now, let's get straight on with this episode of Working Hours with Sunyi Dean. So what is it that you're doing now? Uh, I now write for a living, which is a really weird phrase to say. Uh, I write short stories, sometimes essays or blogs, and now novels. I live off my writing, which is unusual as a position. The average author earns about 12k a year in the UK. And that's if you're traditionally published. If you're self-published, it fluctuates a lot more, usually lower. 
So how did you get into that? I mean, it, so you, you're saying it, I mean, I know some of this background, but you're saying it, obviously, like this is something that's fairly recent for you to be able to do. So how, what was your journey into it? Did you just decide in the last few years, I'm going to be a writer and then you sort of head down, got to it, or has it been, you know, you've been working away for years and years, like how's the journey been? Uh, it's been a few years. So the I think the average age of a first-time published author is about 36 or 37. Mm-hmm. For most people, it's a second or third career. For most people, it stays a second or third career because it is very underpaid. Mm. Um, and it takes a long time to learn the craft. There's not a lot of, there's no kind of official mentoring. Mm. You, know, you can't go and become apprenticed or, or picked up by a publisher and then taught and developed and so on. Mm. Uh, and that does mean that it tends to favor people who have a spouse who can support them while they take time off from work. It tends to favor people who have a bit more free time, either less kids or they're a little bit wealthier. Uh, I think they did a study on it a while back and they found that there's something like the majority of authors, you know, who are able to live, they have like the household income is kind of around 50 to 80K. Because they're needing someone else to basically support them, especially mm. in the early years. So I didn't have those things. Um, I had a, I came here in 2005. I went to university. I worked for a bit. I had a long issues with immigration, mm. um, especially after Theresa May brought in her 700 changes to immigration law, wherever they were, something crazy. Um, and then both my children had special needs. So I was out work for about nine years. And during that time, I was learning to write and trying to break into the industry, which is a lot. <laughs> so it's a long process. Yeah, definitely kind of this, the struggling artist rather than, yeah. you know, quick route to success. So, I, I mean, that sounds kind of hellish, was it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it was. And to be honest, if I could have done any other job, I would have tried that. But there were so many barriers to work. Um, mm. I'm autistic. I have the issues with my kids. There are issues with my partner and his mental health and stuff that it just never kind of like someone had to be home to watch these various people at various times. Mm. Um, and then when you've been out of work for a while, it's very difficult to get back in. You get asked a lot of judgy questions. I think people have kind of, yeah, it can be a struggle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, and it doesn't even have to be that long, you know, like it can be. If you do over a year, they're like, where have you been? Why, why were you not working for more than a year? Like, yeah. Um, actually, I think the, the place to intern at after university was uh, an employment agency. Mm-hmm. And during the training, they actually said, you know, if you're looking at this person's CV, if they've been out of work more than four months, that's a bad sign. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's a bit harsh. But that was their policy and that was how they looked at it. Uh, so I do think that, you know, the employers probably see it in a similar light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I have my own grievances with recruitment and stuff, which I'll <laughs> go and expand on at some point, but not not now. Um, okay, so I I had a look at your website and uh, some of the stuff that's on there, and you know, you seem to be kind of mapping the journey that you you've gone yeah. through, getting the literary agent, getting into, and sort of, you know, putting some of that process in there that you didn't have, perhaps. Was that just kind of a was that just kind of a like social media strategy or was that like a way of you tracking for yourself? Like what what made you kind of want to create uh, that? There's a lot of opacity in, in publishing. The people don't talk about failure. There's a sense that you need to always put your best foot forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of people who don't talk about their paths or the big names you hear about. So, you know, one of 
one name that's always dredged up, people cite J.K. Rowling as like a, a really inspirational kind of experience. But J.K. Rowling actually had very, very few rejections and in industry terms, she rocketed to success and she was mm. picked up very quickly. And her story is actually very not representative of most people. Most people mm. get hundreds of rejections, it takes years, yada, yada. Um, but at the time, there were not that many people talking about it. I think now that's really changed and you will see a lot of people being more open about their their journey to publication, all the things they face, because it is, you know, it's very difficult for a lot of people. So, mm. And it's an industry that, uh, you know, like any other industry, it's an industry that's mm. gone through massive changes. I mean, yeah. you know, like, I know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you know, for example, like, do you know how, what your physical copies uh, versus your electronic copies is like? I mean, do you sell more? I assume you sell more of one than the other, but which way is that sort of resting? Um, for, so it's different for different kinds of books and different genres. For me, definitely I sell more hard copies, mm -hmm. but that's a bit skewed by some of how the market works in the UK, mm. uh, which is a long explanation that I won't go into because it's, it's very boring unless you're particularly interested in book crates, but yeah, mm. I, I sell hard copies more than eBooks. Yeah. I suppose the other part, well, let's go into kind of your day to day. You sort of said you, you taught yourself the craft. So in terms of craft, what, what has been your process? Are you a person that's like every day get up right from like such and such time to such and such time? Or how do you work uh, it? There are a lot of people who will advise that you do that, that you write every day and you really block that time. Mm. If you do look at those people, actually, um, you know, they tend to be men, married, kind of middle class at least. Mm. And they have someone to basically, you, could, you know, they have like a spouse who can keep the children away and that kind of mm. thing. It, for most, for a lot of people, that's not possible. I couldn't write every day. Um, it's just, you have to work with what you've got and the time you've got. And I think, who was it? I can't remember who told me this, but someone told me once that people who are financially poor are often time poor as well. Yeah. So if you have less income, you have less time because you spend more time, you know, if you can't drive, you spend more time traveling and stuff yeah. like that, really basic things. Yeah. So um, I've always been short on time. So my process was to do as much in my head as possible and to get words down in short amounts of sprints. Mm. Um, and that's just what worked for me. I think whatever helps you finish, you know, it'll be different for every person in their situation. Yeah. Did you go through all of that? Like, did you have, I just need to go and lock myself away in a cabin for a week. Like, no, no you were never no. there. <laughs> there. There's no space. There's no room. Um, my son, can't be left it couldn't be left alone when mm. he was young he was had lots of behavior issues so um no it was just right around them here and there you know at the kitchen table or when they're asleep possible mm. and then in terms of i mean i suppose it's this kind of cliche kind of area but you know in terms of your ideas and, and getting the ideas was that quite easy to sort of come up with stuff did you did you have like genre in mind did you like start out with a plan of the kind of thing that you wanted to write or did you just know that you wanted to write uh i wrote in the genre that i read most of which was yeah. at the time fantasy um sometimes i write lit pick or sci-fi as well uh, i really like most genres i like i really like crime i like some thrillers mm. um i like some lit Lit fig, but I felt most comfortable writing in fantasy because you can incorporate those other elements. But no, I think genre specifically, that's the way that readers think about genre is very different from how publishers think about it. To, mm. to publishers, it's a marketing term. So learning what genre meant to them was a whole process and learning mm. 
what what reading meant in a commercial sense was a learning process too. Mm. I want to talk about kind of revisions, your rewrites and yeah. so on. And then um, sort of that process is when, you know, having a publisher come on board or having literary agents get involved mm-hmm. as more people come in and then they have a stake in in, in your thing mm-hmm. um, and want input in your thing. Like, how was that process? Was that like, was that quite easy to sort of navigate? We did, was it really difficult? Cause you were kind of like protective. I've spent ages on this and who are you to come in? Were you kind of like really receptive to advice? Like, how was that? I think different people will feel differently about it. Mm. My feeling is that if I want a product to be, cause a book is a product, like whether you want it to be or not, it is a product. If you want to write a book, which is commercially viable, which is accessible to lots of people, you have to be willing to listen to feedback mm-hmm. and you have to think about it like I still write things that are interesting to me but I think about them in terms of like how does a reader approach this what is you know where does this sit in a bookshop and that that is the business side of it Mm. um and if if you want your book to be all very artsy to be about self-expression to be for you then that's fine but then that's not wanting to be a professional writer that's wanting to kind of write for a hobby which is a good hobby but yeah, because I wanted it professionally and I don't mind adapting, uh, I really enjoyed the feedback. I think mm. the concept of craft is tied up with making a book more accessible to other people. Mm. Um, and I think, I don't know, it, in regular day jobs, I, you don't get any kind of creativity. You know, I can't, there's nothing like writing a book in, in the mm. few day jobs I had. So making some changes or revisions to a book so that it's more accessible for a large number of people didn't bother me because it's still a creative endeavor and I still really enjoyed it. Mm. Um, and it but people feel differently on it. Yeah, but it's also being wise enough to kind of accept that, you know, like these yeah. people are experienced, they know what they're doing, they've seen this kind of stuff before. Yeah. Like I should listen to various things, you know, maybe not everything, but... And I think as well, that's part of being successful, isn't it? It's, you know, like listening to people, learning to listen to people. Yeah, and also that, you know, a lot of their complaints or a lot of their criticisms were valid or come from a place. Literary agents get so many queries a year. So mm. when they sign you, it's because they do feel like an appreciation of that book. They want the best for it and their feedback comes from that place. And the same thing from editors usually. Mm. They want the best for a book, they have a vision for it, they want to find readers for it. And so they're coming from it. Um, even though, you know, they work for a corporation, the corporation doesn't have your interests at heart, individuals mm. can do and, and often do. Mm. I mean, do you involve anyone else? Like, do you have anyone proof before? Do you, like, do you write the whole thing and then you take it to an agent or you kind of like, do, do you make your husband like read, you know, read these or? <laughs> um, so I'm not actually married before, yeah, um, but I don't, no, sorry, I don't, uh, I don't make my partner read it because he's not really a writer. Mm. Uh, I have writer friends, people that I met when we were all learning to write and we swap work among mm. ourselves and, and we kind of shore up each other's weaknesses a bit. Mm. Uh, my agent does tend to read the things, even post-deal. She'll, she'll read what I send her and then if there's time and then it goes on to the editor. Yeah. Is it nice to bring those collaborators in, into the process? Because, I mean, obviously writing's a, a lonely pursuit. Is it nice to kind of have people involved in your story and your project when it comes to that point? I think it's the way to develop your craft. Mm. Um, so I swapped with a lot of people when I was learning to write. It was 
and swapping is you take their manuscript, they take yours, and you each critique the others. Mm. And the process of critiquing someone else is you really learn, you start thinking about it, and that's more useful on us getting the critiques. Mm. Um, so I do think the collaboration helps, and the, you have to find a middle ground between oh, this person's telling me something, and it doesn't doesn't resonate with me, mm. and working out what's good advice and what isn't, and what works for you. That's just all sort of part of it. I mean, in terms of other roles that you've done before you did this, what kind of things were you were you doing? What kind of roles were you doing initially? Uh, before having kids, it's just admin. Um, I think that was one of the issues I had with this. I think, like, they weren't bad jobs, but there, there, there was stuff. So I used, I used to work briefly for Volkswagen, and I remember we had days, like, we were building this knowledge base, but the IT team was in India, and if something was going wrong at their end, we'd have nothing to do all day and we'd still get paid. But I would mm. think like this day is just been a waste of my time. Mm. Um, so I don't know. It depends what job you have. But I've never felt like I was doing a job that was particularly useful in a way. Mm. Yeah, 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 I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, it just felt like this is the thing I have to do to get money. And mm. It wasn't, I don't know. That's not satisfying, really, is it? <laughs> no. Um, I did a TESOL qualification, and I was under a lot of pressure from my parents to go and teach, but I really would be an awful teacher. Um, mm. uh, my my partner at the moment is a teacher, and I, I feel confirmed in this belief. Like, it's a very different skill set, and not everyone's suited to it. But in terms of sort of next next steps, what are your next steps? Have you already got sort of work underway have you got another book on the way like are, is it going to be a sequel are you going to do something else like what are your sort of next step plans at the moment publish so i'm on a three book contract for all standalones like not not part of a series mm-hmm. and i'm working on the next one and the way this contract works is you get paid at certain points so you get mm-hmm. paid when you sign the contract paid when you had them finished manuscripts paid on publication so I'm aware of the ticking clock and the fact that, you know, the longer I take, the further away payment is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do work with that kind of hanging over my shoulder. Um, I guess my goal is basically to do well enough to get another contract because that's, I mean, people talk about royalties, but I don't really, you don't worry about getting royalties. The payouts of publishing are more about the advances that you get for the contracts. No. For, yeah. for those who don't know, when you get a book deal, the publisher offers you an advance, which is the amount of money they think your book will earn in sales. So say if they think your book will earn $10,000 in sales, they'll give you $10,000. Um, and you don't get any more money until it's had that many in sales and then you start getting royalties. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's what you live for is that the next contract, um, and it is a brutal industry. 80% of people are gone by book three, 90% by book six. 5% make it to like 10 books or more. So mm. my goal is to make it to at least book six, <laughs> get another contract. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, does that scare you at all? Does that, is, is that like, do you find that intimidating? I would it's like, oh, I have to do this. Or are you just very much like you're taking it a day at a time sort of thing? Uh, yeah. I take it a day at a time. And also with, um, I guess with a grain of salt as mm. well. Um, because, or for example, like 60% of people get a book published and don't publish another book after that. But that includes like a lot of people who publish memoirs. And, mm. you know, if you've written a memoir, you're not going to write like, well, you've only had one life, haven't you? So yeah. <laughs> you don't write loads of the things. Yeah. Um, but I think <laughs> the, the odds are stacked against people in, in publishing anyway. So, so 
extravagantly that you just like you can't worry about it. You just have to put it out of your mind and just focus on staying afloat as long as you can. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I will move into the questions. So I'm going to start off with COVID. I uh, generally ask you to kind of like think back to lockdown mm. and sort of when when you did lockdown, if you did lockdown, um, and sort of what, what happened. Did your work increase? Did it decrease? Was it sort of, you know, because some people it was just like it drops off. They weren't doing anything. For other people, it was like just, you know, hour, nonstop out of all, all the hours of the day kind of thing. Um, obviously, for a lot of people, it varied because it was over such a long period of time. Um, but yeah, take us through your sort of lockdown journey and then sort of what do you think has changed about your work from from that mm. time? Um, so my lockdown period is probably very different from most people in the industry. Uh, firstly, COVID made me realize I was quite isolated because my life basically didn't change at all, aside from my kids being home more. Um, <laughs> but it's... Um, <laughs> I was stuck on the book at the time and during lockdown, it brought to head some other issues, which basically resulted in me uh, separating from my husband and moving out during lockdown, mm. um, which was very awkward. It was very awkward to move house in that period. And yeah. then, but then once I was out there, I don't know, something about that just kickstarted the book and I finished it and then it sold. So lockdown for me was really good. It was like a, I think because if you'd asked me before lockdown, like if that was possible, I would have said, oh no, people would never stand for that. You couldn't get the world to stand still in that mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And so seeing that actually things could really be different, even if it was a negative, mm. um, was an interesting kickstarter. I think for a lot of people, we did see the world differently, mm. uh, especially after COVID and how it really divided people's reactions. Mm. Um, their attitudes, you, you really saw everyone around you in a different light, what they were or weren't willing to do. Um, so it was kind of a good thing for me. For my industry, it kind of broke publishing for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, publishers were not, I mean, it's, it caused stock issues that we're still having. We Like they literally ran out of paper, which is mm. a, a problem for printing yeah. books. Um <laughs> So one of the printers nearly went bust. I think it might have done, actually. There's only like two printers in the world you know, mm. publishing. Um, and and everybody wrote a book during lockdown because they weren't working. Yeah. <laughs> so there's tons <laughs> of books now. So in addition to everything being backed up, there's agents are overwhelmed with COVID submission books and, and publishers are overwhelmed and everyone's scrambling and burnt out because they're trying to work since backlog. So it, yeah. it did a number of publishing, actually. It was, it was pretty difficult. Tanked a lot of people. Uh, nothing like debuting and publishing, sorry, debuting COVID to find that you can't get to stores, you can't have events, you can't, yeah. <laughs> can't sell anything. So it was an interesting period of change yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for everyone. But yeah, we weren't immune to it at all. So when did you, so how far out of the the sort of the last lockdown where we, like when did your book come out and when did you have to start like i guess you had to do some pre-promotion as well so you're kind of like your marketing engagement and tours and stuff will have started a bit before i guess um well see so i finished the book in june and then i think gave it to my agent in july and then like four days later tour bought it which is incredibly fast but mm. That was in the early days of lockdown where my editor and I think kicked out of her office and she wasn't really working or something. I don't know. She had time to read. So, um, and then two years after that, the book came out. So books have a long lead time. It came out in August. 
um, there's about a year of promotion. You don't do tours. That's not really a thing for debut authors. It doesn't sell books and it's expensive. Mm. But yeah, there there were issues. Like I'm glad that it actually we, we took a while to get the book out because it avoided lots of COVID. I think I was originally scheduled for February. There were still lockdowns and stuff going on yeah. during that time. Um, and yeah, I think all the promotion is kind of done in the year before. I think if you think of it like a theater show, you don't wait. If you want to put on a theater show, you don't wait to the night of the performance and then say, right, I better get some actors and put some weight mm. this out. You've got to do all that work in advance so that you go on the night. And mm. that's the same book launch as you do all the work in advance and then you go on the launch. Um, so it's a little bit quieter now, I think, in that that kind of quiet period. November's a dead month for publishing and mm. the book's already out. <laughs> so... Um, yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. It's a bit all over the place. Sorry. No, no, you did. I, I mean, like, I suppose the other part is, um, I suppose, well, it's the change element, but yeah, I mean, that's hard to tell because of your, your process. I mean, obviously you could see that things were changing around you, but yeah, there's no, you don't really have a yardstick of like how it was working before COVID in the industry, do you? Uh, I have some because I was yeah. working because I, I had a, other books in submission that didn't sell and stuff. So I was kind of in the game for a while, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah, lately, publishers rely on bookstores. They really struggle the the, the need to suddenly go very online. Mm. Um, I do think it increased accessibility because one of the things that publishing people will tell you if you're trying to get in is, oh, go to conferences, go to meets, go to. I could never afford that, didn't have childcare. Yeah. Um, but during COVID, all of that stuff went online and a lot stayed online. Yeah. And so online networking became much more of a thing than it than it ever was before. And that was really good for authors who were disabled or low income. Mm. Uh, it really opened a lot of doors. So I think some things about it were very good. Um, there's less emphasis on bookstores, less in person events, more disabled access. Mm. Uh, conventions now have in-person and like Zoom events. You might have a panel that's got like someone phoning in from Zoom and uh, yeah, yeah. people are physically there, which is really cool. Yeah, They always should have done it. But um, yeah, so those are some changes, I think, that, that were perhaps positive and I hope lasting. Yeah. Let's do social media next and stay in the area of kind of marketing and stuff. Mm. So uh, what I want to look at here is how much of your time, because more and more people have to do social media marketing as part of their work um mm. you know obviously you're doing this which is in that 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 area um so how much time do you have to give to sort of working on social media and how much return on investment do you think that time delivers like do you see it as really valuable or do you see it as something that you just have to do um uh, so there's a kind of a, a belief in publishing that uh, you need to have like platform and social media. If you write nonfiction, that's true mm-hmm. because nonfiction is bought on the basis of expertise and personality. So for example, if you're a celebrity, people buy your memoir, mm-hmm. not because it's well-written, but because they want to read all about the secret history of uh, mm-hmm. David Beckham or something mm-hmm. um, or expertise. Uh, oh, that's a good one. You might have, uh, this is going to hurt the junior doctor memoir. So that's, that's written based on, oh, right, he's from an actual doctor and he's talking about doctoring. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for fiction, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really sell books. Mm. If you're a celebrity like Richard Osman, then yes, you can you can debut. I think his book hit 127,000 sales the first week over summer when it came out, right? And he's mm. a celebrity. But most of us aren't celebrities. Mm. 
So if you're not a celebrity, being on social media doesn't actually affect sales because that's not how sales work in the industry. Uh, most sales come from publishers selling the bookstores or independent gatekeepers like book crates, libraries. Mm. Um, so they publishers like to tell authors that social media makes a difference because then when a book doesn't do well, they can say, well, you didn't get on Twitter enough. Mm. Um, but it doesn't actually help that much. So I do as much as I enjoy. Um, I have like the platform there because if publisher does its job, people come to you. Mm. Um, if someone tags me on Instagram and they're not being a douche, then I'll respond to them mm. and, you know, be polite and engage and have fun. But otherwise I just do what I'm comfortable with because I've looked at the maths on it and it really doesn't make a difference in a lot of cases. Mm. Uh, unless you're going, unless you're one of those people who's like really actively build a newsletter and that can. Mm. I mean, you're very good with your uh, stats and stuff. I mean, you've obviously done a lot of research on the industry. That's not just like you didn't just sit down to write. You've gone at this seriously. Like, this is what I want to do. Like, you read I, around it. I just, I get very anxious. Having facts makes me less anxious. I feel yeah. like. If I can stare all the risks in the face, I feel a bit better about it. Like I'm making informed choices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and because you want to give your book a good chance and you want to know what's actually going to help or what isn't. And mm. If you're very social media savvy, it can help, but I'm not. So I don't, you know, I don't get on TikTok and I do have friends. That, so I think I've got one friend that spends like an hour a day doing research, putting TikTok videos together. It does make a difference to her sales, but that's quite a commitment. Mm. Um, and she's quite good at it. I wouldn't be. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause it like, it takes time. Like even if you're really good mm. with video stuff, it's going to take you time to oh, yeah. get everything up, get everything right. Turn it around. Yeah. Yes. So I shall move off of social media. We'll go on to, let's do Brexit. Cause I think this will be short and sweet with you. Um, so since we have Brexited, um, have you noticed any change in your work, either for the better, the worse, or has there been no change that you can notice? Yeah, it's just worse. Um, overnight, um, UK contracts became worth less than they were mm. before because it used to be if you sold your UK English print rights, that meant it was the UK was like a really good point for selling English language books into Europe because a lot of Europeans read English. Mm. So like, I, I, my book is for sale in France in English, um, mm. not French. Um, but now it's much more expensive to do that. So it's very awkward. So, you know, we get smaller deals for the UK rights. Supplies are a bigger issue. There's a lot of backlog. Mm. And I, oh, whoops, there, there are other stuff. There's other stuff with it. Oh, yeah, VAT. That's um, now I have to waste hours of my life filling out VAT forms mm. because we're not in the economic area. Uh, so foreign rights deals are a massive pain. Mm. Um, and yeah, lots, lots of things are just awkward, basically, um, selling books overseas is, is a, a pain and it's difficult and. Mm. Yeah, that's like, I, I, to be honest, I was expecting a straightforward kind of like, oh, it's not really affected me, but yeah, that, yeah, I didn't think of any of that really, but obviously <laughs> you've had your market just incredibly shrunk. Yeah. Um. I think I don't think there's a single industry that hasn't been kind of tanked by Brexit. I mean, I don't know how you feel about Brexit. I, I'm going to guess you're not probably the biggest fan of it. But no, I don't think um, it was the best idea anyone's ever had. <laughs> no, 
Um, I didn't, I didn't vote for it. I voted to remain. Uh, I was disappointed in results and all the predictions for what it would do publishing have basically come true. And that's mm. unfortunate. Mm. Well, that's it's all wrong. It's the same with most things, isn't it? It's like, don't do this thing. It will be really bad. Here will be all of the results of this thing. And then we do the thing. And then all of the results that people said were going to happen, yeah. happen. Mm -hmm. uh, which we're doing now with um, climate change, which we'll go on to next. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so again, this is, I, I think this would be quite interesting with, with you because you're in this, sort of in this area. So, like, what I want to look at is what you can do in your work in terms of climate change, either for adaptation, mitigation, or awareness uh, raising. Um, and whether, you know, like it's a consideration for you in your work, like what the reason I'm asking this is I want me, me and my work to be considering it sort of yeah. as a primary focus. So I'm asking people how they can do that, or are doing that or what they're doing and trying to steal their ideas, um, <laughs> kind of, kind of. <laughs> but yeah, in your work, what, what, what can you do around climate change? Is it a concern? Um, so yeah, what is for me, I don't know how much the industry cares. I think a lot of things are moving electronically mm -hmm. and that probably helps. So there is a lot of waste, but it, it used to be worse. It used to be, so saying J.K. Rowling say, right? she was manually posting her printed book mm. to agents, copy each. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, if an agent got the book and they'd be like, oh, okay, and then they have to print and post it out to all these publishers and all the mm -hmm. papers getting pulled. Uh, all that's electronic now, which I think is probably better. Mm. Um, there is still a lot of waste. So there's a thing called remaindering, which is a publisher sells books to a bookstore. Um, and the bookstore is allowed to return any of those books after a certain period of time for a full refund if they don't sell, mm -hmm. um, which then comes out of your royalties. Uh, that's left over from the, uh, the Depression era in the States. Which is a long story, but anyway, and when the publisher gets those back, they remainder them, which is they cult them, mm. and they just go in a bin, basically. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of waste to that, and there are ways to reduce waste. I think they're looking at it because it does cost everybody money as well as just being a huge waste of trees. Mm. So, uh, yeah, any more on 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 the climate change aspect? No, but you kind of make me want to look into it more because it's not something I've looked into massively. Um, I think we all just have a general sense of guilt that we're, our books just destroy trees or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, trees are a store of carbon and they're also a store of knowledge for us. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it's, I, I don't know, maybe we need to think about trees differently. Yeah. Maybe that's the solution. Okay. So I will go to, we've done Brexit, we've done UBI, we've done climate change. We've done the social oh, media. Not, not UBI. Oh, no, we haven't done UBI. No, sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we won't do that yet. Actually, we will. Let's do UBI. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so when you obviously think about this retroactively as well, but I mean, the question is, if there was a universal basic income, would it change what... Uh, well, would you still work? If you would still work, would you still be doing the same thing you're doing now? If you'd still be doing the same thing you're doing now, how do you think it might be changed by UBI? Uh, I would still work because I'd always write, but I think it would change the industry completely. Mm. Um, it would 
the you know the industry favors people who have a certain income and can live in either London or New York, which are very mm. expensive places to live. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think there's actually quite a lot of like. I guess women and housewives as well just don't have the time, don't have other employment. I mm. think, you know, it, it would change our society in so many ways. Pe- people taking time off to look after their kids, still mm. not having income. Mm. It would have changed our lives. I would have worked on the books, but with less guilt. Mm. <laughs> um, and we wouldn't have been below the poverty line for that entire time or not mm. as badly. Um, and it would definitely support people because those first five years are tough where you have to treat once you get published, you have to treat it like a full-time job, even if you already have a full-time job. Mm. And that's that's a lot to ask from people, you know. So it, it would completely revolutionize it because creatives do get the short straw, mm. um, especially in the early days when you, you're trying to really bootstrap. Obviously, there's people at the top like Stephen King who are just making millions, but most people don't in mm. creative industries for music or writing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that's why I just I think it, it would support you know you'd see a lot more interesting work coming out I suppose mm. <laughs> well you, you know like you've mentioned before accessibility yeah. as well you know getting different voices out um and I think that's so going back to the climate change sort of thing one of the things you know i'm not unique in this but there's plenty of people sort of saying you know like we we haven't got and especially working in science fiction and stuff it's like we haven't got enough for we haven't got these visions of the future not only of like what to represent the reality of what's happening but also to try and present visions of how to deal with it how to cope what's how to get beyond it imagine new possibilities like um yeah so uh, basically want you to get it to talk get you to talk around that for a bit basically just sort of your your thoughts on um you know like the artist side like how they can contribute from a, a kind of um a climate perspective but then you know with the accessibility yeah. issue as well of like diversifying voices no i do think that's important so i did grow up actually kind of very conservative very religious very closeted uh and I remember as a child watching Star Trek, and I do think that for me had like a big impact. The Star Trek had this wonderful, progressive, socialist future where they've had war and then they got over it, and they've rebuilt society, and they all live in this utopia. And mm. um, and I don't know if you watch Star Trek, but mm. yeah, you know everyone in Star Trek they're not paid. Mm. Um, it's a complete meritocracy. Picard is captain because he's good at it and he wants to be, and he doesn't have a salary or anything. Mm. And just I think. When I was a bit older and people would say, oh, but can you imagine what a social society would look like? Even though it was silly, I could be like, well, yeah, actually, you can see Star Trek. Because, <laughs> but having a template for what the future could look like is really important. And yeah. I think, um, uh, and I think sci-fi recognizes that. There's a, a very conscious movement, actually, to move away from dystopia at the moment, which wasn't mm. a big thing for a while. So mm. um, there's an award that's been founded. I think it's called the Ursula Le, Le Quint. Sorry. Ursula K. Le Guin Award. Um, And it's given to books that write about hopeful futures and show us the pathway towards it. So it's not that the books can't have darkness, but they feature alternate societies or suggestions for how society could be. Mm. They offer hope for the future because there is an impact when you read miserable fiction all the time. You start Mm. to think that everything is miserable. Mm. Um, And that they've really touched on some interesting novels actually that have come out um there's a new trend they call it hope punk Mm. 
<laughs> and Cli-Fi. Yeah, I've heard of Cli-Fi. Uh, and, and the both of those are really good, and they, they do deal with those issues um, very adroitly, I think. Uh, but Sci-Fi's been saying it for a while, so J.G. Ballard, back in the 50s, when he wrote The, the Drowned which is set in uh, a world that's been consumed by global warming and the, the seas have risen and the main characters are like paddling through a flooded Britain mm. <laughs> as they slowly revert back into being lizards or something. And <laughs> it was very, it was very forward looking for his time that you could see, you know, he kind of kicked off disaster fiction, but he was worrying about the future even then. Mm. Uh, now that future is here, we have to worry about what a better future could look like. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, and, you know, that's not just a, 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 a fiction issue. It's a, you know, a factual issue as well. I mean, the news is obviously the news and the politics all together, but when that coalesces into a big, you know, like, you know, storm of awfulness, it does have an effect on the, on the society overall. Um, I think people give up. Yeah. 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 They just well, think solutions aren't there. Yeah. And, and, but that's, yeah, that, that doesn't bode well for you socially. Um, you know, there has to be, there has to be something, you know, somewhere to move towards, I think. And then we, we kind of lose it if we don't have, if everyone's just going, uh, and just trying to get. Yeah, way. it's not true as well. I think often people get, we get stuck in thought patterns. We say something's not achievable and then it turns mm. out it is, mm. you know, we said, oh, that lockdown's not achievable. And then it, it did actually happen. And yeah, um, the way people are saying, oh, we can't revolutionize green energy so quickly, but then the war with Russia has forced us to. Yeah, and you know, I read the other day we're going to what peak carbon emissions in twenty twenty five. That's kind of like decades of work that are going to take place in a few years mm. because when there was a need, we did do it, and it was possible. We just mm. thought that it wasn't, and that was our excuse, our our, mm. our self rejection. Mm. Okay. Um, I think convincing people that change is possible is massively important. Yeah, 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 yeah. and needed, mm. and and not just thinking around the edges, <laughs> and not just. So if, oh, we blame this group or whatever, because, you know, like I've said this a bunch of times, but in terms of, you know, like migration and so on, people are complaining about it now. Imagine when London goes underwater and you've got 8 million people coming up north, you know, like what are they going to do then? They're still going to be putting machine gun turrets everywhere. Probably, but then you run out of bullets and then they go over the wall anyway. (laughs) Then they're not happy. (laughs) So... (laughs) Um, yeah, so back on, back, back to UBI for a bit then. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the wider thing as well is, I, I mean, if you extend that, you know, when you were talking about like your, your, your manuscript swapping, like, yeah. I mean, I can imagine from there, like probably everyone, you know, from that group, UBI would have been absolutely life-changing for them through that process. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely think so. I think. I think it would be for most people. Um, and at some point, as, as we mechanize more, there just won't be enough jobs. Mm. And also, there's something weird to me about the idea of working for the sake that people used to work because they needed to survive. But mm. I'm not convinced that any of the jobs that I did before writing were necessary. Mm. Mm. Um, I mean, I know you can make that claim against fiction, but I think that, I think. I don't know. I think it, I think I certainly had more of an impact doing fiction than I ever did doing those other jobs. Yeah. And if my fiction had little impact, then those jobs had less. Mm. Um, 
So why why do we have this like this idea that people should work just for the sake of it? It's, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, and especially when you're in a stage of late capitalism, whatever yeah. you want to call it, where where people are working, you know, yeah. and are working a lot and are still in poverty. And yeah. it's like, well, how does that make sense on any level? Especially when, you know, most work is producing carbon to release into the sky to yeah. make us all more cooked. It's like, don't work. Can we not pay people not to work? Like, yeah, okay, there's lots of negative sides to that of like, you know, you need to have social function, social meaning and so on. But, you know, hopefully we'd have more time and we could chat about it a bit more and be a bit more productive. With yeah, it. and I think when you have kids as well, um, I remember talking to one of my friends about the really weird fact that like we could each register at child, child minders and pay each other mm-hmm. to mind our our each other's children and we get government subsidies for it but if we mind our own children we're just on our own because it's not work if they're your own it's like work if they're someone else's and mm. there's so many things with that um so one of the things i found difficult is my son would have needed specialist child care for me to go back to work and that, mm-hmm. but when i looked at the cost it was about 16 to 25 quid an hour yeah and um, that's double what i would have worked earned going back into work yeah on the flip side i can't go and and get work as someone caring for a sin child because I don't count as qualified, even though I do that work free at home mm-hmm. with my kid. So there are all these kind of things. It's like, and if you just had me the eye, it would have been a recognition of the fact that I do work that's hard to quantify. Mm. Um, that I'm, you know, saving either the uh, that I'm not paying someone else six to twenty five quid an hour to do a job that I can do at home. Mm. Um, and it's just, yeah, there's all kinds of weirdness about what we consider work to be and what what we pay and don't pay. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I think it's a big part of moving forward. We have to reconsider the whole idea and just be like, but, you know, this is a nonsense. It isn't just you go somewhere and you get paid because, like you say, look at all the unpaid labor that goes on that has to underpin all of this paid labor, you know, like this game of like playing with cash because it is it's it, you know it's an unnecessary invention of the last few hundred years or whatever thousand years but that's not the entirety of our history it's a tiny part of yes. that <laughs> so, um yeah which is why i want to talk to people about about work and kind of how they see it because obviously that's my position you've got some yeah. sympathy with that um but i don't think it's most people's I think most people are kind of, well, there's also the element of like, most people don't get time to think about it because they've got to go to work and they've got to bring up the kids and we've got to, you know, so you don't always get chance. Yeah. I think it emotionally opens doors as well, where if you say, well, you know, you shouldn't force people to, uh, it makes people start to question their own lives. And I think they feel like they'll be more happy if they start doing that, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, but I, I do, I definitely worry about work in terms of my kids, because both mine are autistic, my son's non-speaking, the chances of them being in employment are quite low. Mm. Um, 90% of autistic adults are not employed. Mm. Uh, and that's due partly to discrimination and other things going on. Um, so I'm in that 10% of, of, of autistic adults who are. But that means that they will need some form of support as they get older. And if the UBI was there, I wouldn't worry about them as much. Mm-hmm. Um because I think they would be capable of managing their money when they're older, but that's different from going into a work environment. They're not supported at all. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the way that people, for me, the way that people view kind of people's social usefulness. Yes. Uh, it, it's sort of like, you know, this kind of, so for example, if you're a homeless guy on the street or whatever, socially unuseful, but, you know, that guy could be there doing all sorts of things, you know, where he sleeps in a doorway could make that area safer at night, for example. Yeah. Or, you know, stops and and occasionally people asking for directions and perhaps some of those people want to you know like they're going to an incredibly important meeting that if they'd missed the world would have ended and he's there and he sort of gives them directions like you never know how people are going to be instrumental like really really useful um but we kind of like to see us all as just we're all superfluous (laughs) yeah and i think i had real insecurity about that for a long time because i was very aware that i've become this kind of stereotype that people with daily mail would hate. I was for a while a single parent mm. who was originally an immigrant with my disabled children and I'm disabled mm. and we were fully on benefits for a period of time. Mm. And we, we were the kind of useless family that people hate in, mm. in papers and to the point where I was always, you know, you feel ashamed all the time. Nice. Mm. Um, and then after all the book stuff happened and everyone's perception of me changed. Mm. but I wasn't any different. And it's a really mm. weird feeling. Um, mm. When the book came out, it hit number two on the, the Sunday times list. And uh, I guess there was a part of me that was thinking like, you know, how many people could have made it to this point who are in my position, but didn't because they just mm. don't have support and they just didn't get lucky mm. um, that they could have written something, maybe a film or a book or whatever, done mm. some great project if they had that support in place, if they were, not regarded as useless or a drain on finances, you know. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but then I do believe, I do believe a little bit in the, you know, not not quite spare the rod, spoil the child. But I mean, if things are too easy for us, it's it can be, yeah, you know, it can lead to torpidity of just sort of, you know, you're just like you're not doing any. Because I always find with myself, if I'm not doing stuff, I do I do more of nothing. Whereas when I start doing things. The more I've got on to do, okay, so some things might slip, but the more I've got on to do, the more I will get done. I sort of, does that make sense? Like I, yeah, yeah. I pick up productivity as I'm being more productive. I can be more productive. Yeah, doing nothing. I forget what they call it. It's a different kind of stress. So you get one stress from doing too much, and there's another kind of stress you experience from too little. Mm. Um, and people need to have challenges, but maybe not punitive ones. Mm. Mm. Or in, you know, or in, too unnecessarily stressful one like i do think there is something to the you know like having that fire under your backside um to kind of you know motivate you into doing stuff like i i know with peers i've seen people who you know for example they have kids and it's like right i've got to get serious now i've got to go for a like i've got to get a job i've got to pay for stuff i can't i can't do my artistic pretensions anymore i've got to Mm. get paid um I do think that's valuable as well, but I think we're capable of that without a threat of destitution and <laughs> disease and death. Um, yeah, and I think as well, if you give people a little bit of assistance, sometimes the, the ones that make something of it will seize that. Hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, uh, it's certainly here, I think like the UK has a lot better social security network than the States. Um, and that has definitely helped me. Like I'm able to write because we have the NHS and the, mm. that free when healthcare. So that's the biggest reason why people can't support themselves in writing in the States because mm. that 
writing doesn't give you health insurance. Mm. So a hospital stay becomes 30 grand. Um, you need a job that <laughs> means you can go to the doctor. Mm. Uh, so just having that little bit of assistance, well, yeah, well, not taking away all the challenges. I don't know. It was useful for me, just something to seize on to. <laughs> mm. Mm. Okay. So I will move into the change question then. Uh, so here the question is, if there were any three things that you could change about your work, so you can anything at all with this, um, what would you change? So any three things. I would want writers to be unionized. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, our pay has continued to drop basically for about a century. Mm. Um, I mean, I, this was extravagant, but back in probably like a hundred years ago, the, the average pay for short story was like eight cents a word and it's still eight cents a word mm. or something ridiculous. So, you know, it used to be you could sell a short story and have the down payment for a house. And obviously that's a bit, that would be mad now. Yeah. But um, <laughs> uh, that was when there was no TVs. People actually read magazines. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, pay could be better. Uh, I don't know if you, you probably haven't followed that. There was a big trial recently between two publishers who were trying, two big corporation publishers, one of them was trying to acquire the other. Hmm. And if they'd been allowed to do that, it would have basically wrecked all their pay completely because the less competition there is, the less we get paid and all the stuff. And it didn't go through in the end, thankfully. Hmm. So yeah, I think we should unionize. We have a real problem with, with low pay and uneven pay. Um, I don't... <sighs> Yeah, you're talking big changes. I would love to see Amazon broken up, but that's not realistic. <laughs> um, you can choose it. <laughs> yeah, I can choose it. It won't happen, but you know, it would be nice. Uh, at least some regulations on them. <laughs> um, and I guess I'd like to see it decentralized. Uh, it is still very biased against people who live in London or New York, mostly yeah. New York. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that's a whole issue. It's unright. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, like, have you had much pull towards, I mean, you obviously have of like people sort of saying, oh, you know, you should be in London or you need to be in London more. I suppose with COVID that's eased a little bit because they've had to rely on stuff online so much. Um, it's not been too bad because I can get on a trade. Good London. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think if you live in the States, it's, it's a very big problem because mm. You can't go visit New York. Um, it just means that, you know, you do get to less events, you know less people, you're a bit more out of it. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it, it, it is different, but fundamentally that's where the publishers have their big buildings, So, and that's where the agents tend to live. Mm. 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 So do you have a – oh, no, that's three, isn't it? You've changed – that's three you've picked. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so we've gone through them fairly quickly, um, but I'm going to throw it over to you, and I'll probably come up with some more random questions as we as we go on. Uh, but yeah, is there anything? Well, let's let's talk about the book first of all. We'll talk about the book eaters because <laughs> we haven't covered that. And uh, as I said, it does sound really interesting. So yeah, tell us a little bit about the book and and um, yeah, what's what what's it about? Obviously, not the whole thing. Um. <laughs> It's kind of a, a contemporary fantasy slash mainstream novel, and it always sounds a bit silly when I talk about it to people, but it's a story in two parts. On one hand, it's, it is about people who eat books for sustenance, and on the other hand, the, the main character is uh, a single mother kind of 
living in Northern England with her child who has a, a very unique hunger. Um, and it's a little bit, <laughs> I guess, let, let the right one in. There's an aspect to that. Mm. Um, her son eats mine, so she has to find people for him to consume. When she finds good people, uh, sorry, if she finds bad people, he takes on their personalities, so she has to hunt good people, and it's a mm. bit of a moral dilemma going on. Um, but I wanted to, it draws on fairy tales, it draws on kind of northern environments, you know, starts in Newcastle, ends up in Scotland. So I mm. wanted it to feature places that I like and know, mm. um, less of London. Um and it's kind of an alternate 90s Britain mishmash of genres. Um, mm. It's a bit silly, but some, I don't know. It's also very dark. <laughs> mm. I'm not good at describing it. Sorry, I wasn't expecting to. No, no, like that. That's that's pretty good. I mean, you must have been asked a million times by now. And the like, is it is it the worst question? Are you just, just like just read it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, usually, I think someone else reads out a summary for book events. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, my editor alluded to that. She did say, oh, yeah, so our challenge is marketing. Is it, you know, the pitch sounds ridiculous. We just have to get people to read it. <laughs> because she thinks that it works when you read it, but it sounds bad on paper, which is which is accurate. I think um, it sounds cool. I, I was like, when I read the little <laughs> synopsis, I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting, actually. Uh, I think what I tend to say to people, that I think the first two chapters are free online on Thor's website somewhere. Mm. Um, and if if the first two chapters horrify people, then I, I generally say, yeah, it's not going to get any better. It's all like that. So, <laughs> and and that's usually a good a good measure of how they'll get on the book. Mm. Okay, so yeah, is there anything that we haven't covered that you you would like to sort of cover? Anything you would like to uh, or go back so. to? I wasn't really sure what it would be about, but it just sounded interesting. So I thought I'd try and do it for fun. <laughs> Yeah, well, it was interesting, but yeah, I don't have much to add. Well, this this is the thing, you know, as you're talking, you kind of it always it 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 changes context when you hear it back, like even yeah. before even before the 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 editing. So you know, when I first did the first recordings, I was kind of like I was waiting for loads of exciting things to happen for people to have really hot takes about like I think this about work and we should be doing this or. I hate my job and I wish I could do something else. Most people like their jobs. Most people aren't that excitable. <laughs> like, you know, most people are just sort of normal and tell you normal things. But that's interesting. The minutiae is interesting when you're kind of <laughs> listening back. If you're into this kind of thing, I think. But yeah. for me, it's the comparisons over time of like, you know, where the similarities and the differences occur, even between odd industries. Can't say. Yeah, and that's fine. Um, I. Uh, I think I, I mean, just bouncing off that, I like the work I do. I like the people individually that I know, mm. but definitely in, in publishing circle, we complain a lot. Um, mm. It's a very brutal industry. It's a very tiered industry. And that's maybe the thing that is the biggest struggle. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think people realize, you know, like when a book hits bestseller list, that's not an accident. It's not because lots of people all over the country said, oh, I'll, I'll give that book a chance. It's because... It's because of the fate of your book and how well it sells is decided from the moment you get a book deal. And it's the publisher saying, well, we think it'll be big, so we'll offer a lot of money because we've offered a lot of money and we want to get our return back. So we're going to throw the kitchen sink and everything in it at this book and we're going to roll out the red carpet. Um, and then because they do that, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They pick mm -hmm. the book that they think will sell, so it sells because they work hard on it. 
Mm. And that means that publishing basically has two tiers of books. It has the books publishers invest in and the books they don't really give a crap about. Mm. Um, and if you're a book that they don't get a, give a crap about, there's nothing you can do to really improve that in mm. most cases. And if you debut, they call it mid-list. So you're either a lead title or you're mid-list. If you debut mid-list, you stay mid-list for most of your career, for mm. most people. So yeah, there's lots of things about publishing that are inherently unfair. The success is manufactured, it's decided by a group of people in a room you've never met. Mm, mm. <laughs> um, and you can't do anything about it because we don't have the unions and you can't argue. It's just them saying, you think your book is worth this. You can take it or leave it. Mm. I'm very lucky. My book had a good advance and it succeeded in large part because the publishers actually did the work. But I have lots of friends who are mid-list and their books did not have that level of success because the publishers just didn't bother, even on like a very basic level, you know, things like less investment in cover, less marketing, less advertising, so on. So mm. there you go. There's some things I don't like. You know, there's lots of things about publishing I don't like, and it definitely has a lot of issues. Mm. Um, some of them are very difficult to go into without kind of info dumping people is how it all works because it's <laughs> a crazy industry and it works in mad, ridiculous, irresponsible ways. Mm. Well, if there's any publishers out there who are in Leeds, then yeah, come on and tell us more. Are <laughs> we all down in London? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, that's the other issue. Well, I bet some of them are from Leeds, even though they're down in London, because uh, we yeah. get everywhere. Um, so uh, what happened with the Northern Affinity then? How come... How come you ended up in Yorkshire? What and setting your book in Yorkshire? What 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 brought that about? Because obviously you uh, mentioned you're from the states. You mentioned Hong Kong, um, so you've been you've you've, you've yeah. lived around as of uh, my, my mother's from Hong Kong, and um, she is the only one in her family who went to university. She wanted to better her life. You know, she came from a, a time and place where the boys went to school and not the girls. So her brother got schooling and. She had to slump her in high school, which wasn't free in Hong Kong. So she was working in a factory at about the age of eight or nine um, to fund high school for herself. And she went to university in Texas and she met my dad there. Um, and she became a born-again Christian mm. and uh, married my dad when Jesus told her to in a dream. And then, I know it's, this is all true, I swear. <laughs> And then they kind of worked in Texas for a while. Um, and then we moved to New Jersey for a year. And then we went back to Hong Kong and she had a job at a university there working on special education at the like, policymaking level. And mm. um, that's where I stayed until I came to the UK. Mm -hmm. um, and I came to the UK to Leeds particularly because um, when I was a teenager, I was really into this fantasy series of books called Wheel of Time, which some people may have heard of. Uh, and I joined a fan fiction site and fell in love with someone I'd never met in a chat room. And they were going to Leeds University, so I applied to Leeds University. Okay. And that's how I ended up in Leeds. <laughs> um, and also Leeds gave me a scholarship, which is which covered a lot of my fees. That made it very affordable. So, um, And uh, that's the person I ended up marrying, having kids with. So we, you know, we made a good haul of it, about 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of went through a lot of things together. But I was only going to come here temporarily, and we just stayed. We just stayed in Leeds. Mm. Uh, and now my kids are in school here. My son's in a special school. Mm. My partner's here. His kids are here. Everything's settled. I don't see any reason why I was leave. I really like Yorkshire as well. Mm. Uh, I grew up reading all the Bronte books. So to me, they were like 
like Moors were magical, you know, that yeah. <laughs> something you read about. Uh, I think most of my favorite authors were from Britain as well. Um, um, the kind of Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, well, <laughs> they were all from here. Philip yeah. Donald. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just c- complete random things, bad teenage decisions, and it, it still works somehow. So, so it, was a, it wasn't like a, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a set plan, but it was kind of like, oh, yeah, I could live there. I've always been kind of fascinated with the place. Yeah, well, my parents had this idea, I think, they'd go to Texas and live as my grandparents go to university there, and that sounded like hell on earth. So mm. certainly a Thatcher moving to Leeds is that all my American family kind of hate Britain and will never live here. <laughs> um, and I love them, but from a distance, so I don't want to live with any of them. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, coming, there are lots of reasons to come to England. I do like it. I really like kind of northern culture particularly i like people are more forthright i think mm. than they are in the states here the myths are all a lie food is like food is really good here the, the myths of british food being rubbish is a lie um the walking is beautiful the land is beautiful mm. uh i did the north coast 500 trip with my partner last summer and that was mm. you know the, the whole island is absolutely amazing to me it's just very very pretty mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot of waffles, sorry. Cut no, 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 that's a, <laughs> that's a great answer. You know, it'll, it'll please the tourist board anyway. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, what else can we kind of cover? Um, I haven't really looked at work-life balance with you. Um, There's no such thing for writing. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to say, because obviously you're kind of juggling things where you can where you can fit them in whenever you can fit them in. I mean, has that improved for you now? Have you got, are you into more of a settled routine or is it still just? No. Okay. I think, okay. but partly I don't want to be. I think, I don't know if it's just being autistic or it's me or it's all writers, but I hyper-focus on stuff. So writing is now my special interest. I hyper-focus on it. When I'm not doing anything else particularly, I think about writing, I think about my mm-hmm. next book. Mm. Um, if I'm not thinking about that, I'm listening to, to industry podcasts. I'm talking to people mm. about industry stuff. It's just in my brain all the time. I have to go out of my way to spend time with people who don't know anything about publishing or writing, just to mm. reset my head. Uh, but yeah, there, it is life. There is no balance. <laughs> Work and life are the same. <laughs> uh, I'll get you to do your socials. Where can people find you if they want to find you? Uh, my website, which is not fantastic, and I think I broke it yesterday. I think it's nice. It's a really nice site. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's sunnydean.com. And otherwise, I use Twitter under, I think it's easier to search my name than to search for blind underscore night terrace, which no one can spell, mm. but which I stubbornly keep anyway. <laughs> and I use Instagram, mm. um, kind of a token effort on both those platforms. <laughs> Uh, but fair warning, I'm the blandest person ever because I have <laughs> thousands of terms muted on Twitter or I can't cope with people on it, um, including yeah. thousands of industry terms because I can't cope with the publishing debates that are very stupid. <laughs> so, uh, both of those are quite blurms, um, but I'm on there, so. Yeah. And your books are available in all good bookstores and yes. on, in all bad ones as well, hopefully. <laughs> yes, hopefully. <laughs> That's just so, the industry phrase. Everyone says all good bookstores are so stuck on. I don't know what it means, really. <laughs> so, yeah, go out and buy it. Anyone listening to this, go and buy it. Thank you again to Sun Yi for being my guest. Thanks again to all my guests. And thanks to you, Leeds, for being my subject. And, of course, most of all, thank you to you, my dear listener. 
Hope you liked that one, and I hope you like the next one too, because I think the next one is Top Class Working Hours, something you wouldn't hear about unless you were particularly interested in it. Keep your eyeballs peeled and your earballs open for notifications for when it's out. You can follow this show on Twitter at Working Hours 3 and on Instagram at Working Hours Pod Leads. Use the hashtag Working Hours Pod Leads to stay up to date on when new episodes are being released, to DM me with your questions, or most importantly, to get in touch if you'd like to be my guest on this show. Please do chuck in anything you can to help the show grow. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash working hours and join me there for a pound a month or you can make a one-off donation of whatever amount. Uh, you can also go to patreon.com forward slash working hours pod to support working hours, again, from as little as a pound a month. Why not be super awesome and join both? Do something new and something different. Remember to like, share, follow, and subscribe to Working Hours. That's me. Cheers, ears. Take care out there and be kind to each other, leads. Working Hours is produced, recorded, edited, and published by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org. Please like Western Studios Leeds on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash western underscore studios underscore Leeds and on LinkedIn linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash western hyphen studios. Leads, are you considering taking the plunge into podcasts or audio content? Then think Western Studios for support, advice and guidance on getting it made. At Western Studios, you work with a real life learner who is actually in Leeds. Not a piece of software, not a course of articles or a series of live chats and video courses, but me, a person in physical place-based reality. If you want to work with me to make your podcast or any digital audio content in Leeds, whether it's for your own cause, your publicity campaigns, to promote your products, increase your sales, or just to create your own passion projects, then get in touch with me, Western Studios, now. Don't wade through vapid articles and videos and podcasts about how to make podcasts by disembodied virtual people on the web. Get on with making your podcast now, and then when it gets hard and expensive and it all goes wrong, which it will, then call Western Studios to make your podcast with you or even for you. Western Studios will take on your podcast boring, time-consuming and painful admin, recording, editing, transcription, whatever. Tell me about your podcasting pain points and I can make it all better for you. I feel your pain. For a charge, I will share it. Remember, podcast work is work. Leeds businesses, Leeds campaigns, Leeds brands. Got an inkling that you'd like a podcast but don't know where to start? Contact Western Studios at makemypodcast at western-studios.com and we'll start making your podcast straight away. The first hour of arranged consultation and pre-production time is free. £25 an hour after that for editing, recording, production. I can also arrange hefty discounts for the right projects. So tell me your idea and your budget and I'll tell you what I can do for you. What do you have to lose? Time, that's what. Time is running out. The best time to make a podcast was 10 years ago. The second best time is right now. Writers in Yorkshire, what are you doing with your lives? Hopefully you're writing. Well, I know there are listeners out there who want to hear great original writing performed as audio content that is about and for and has been made in Leeds. How do I know this? 
because I'm one of them loiners what wants it. Help me make your old screenplays, unpublished novels, unperformed plays, stories, poems, and performances, whatever you got, baby, and make it as podcast content. Is your work arty, salacious, pulpy, strange? Good. Is it unfinished? Good. I can help you with that too. I can work with you to find actors, musicians, and voiceover artists and quickly realise your projects. I get practice making the shows and you get a finished, performed and published version of your writing. Save yourself the hassle and the headache of making your podcasts on your own by working with me instead.